This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I'm joined by Mawera Karatai in Fakatani. How's the weather doing, Mawera? (laughs) Well, Sam, actually, it's overcast and really, really windy, but it's not rainy, which is slightly annoying because, by crikey, do we need the rain after all that sun? It's a glorious day here. I can actually see the sun shining on you, so I'm feeling quite envious. How is level three treating you? Um, it's good. Uh, I'm a bit alarmed to see uh, a, a, an extraordinary number of people out and about um, completely flouting the rules that have been laid out um, and sad by the number of people who are queuing at fast food places, um, but hopefully... Uh, people will remember that we're supposed to be looking after one another and trying not to spread COVID-19. And also in Whakatane, we are joined by Victor Luca, Dr. Victor Luca, who is a city district councillor in Whakatane. Welcome. Uh, G'day, G'day, Sam. How's your bubble going? Oh, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, can't complain. (laughs) Well, I can, but it won't do me any good. (laughs) Who have you got in your bubble? How's it all working for you? Uh, just just my mother, just me and my mother. We live near the beach about, uh, it's only about 50 metres away, so, you know, you can always go out there and uh, get a good burst of fresh air at the moment coming in from the north, so there's a hell of a wind blowing. But, yeah, we've had a pretty good summer here. I mean, too good maybe. In, in fact, there's no sign of winter yet. <laughs> Have you got surfers out now that that sort of thing's allowed? Uh, well, not today. Today it's uh, it's pretty choppy, so I doubt there'd be. But but usually there are a couple. The other day I caught a shark, and there was a, fir- a surfer about twenty minutes to my left. He came out of the water pretty quick. Are you fishing from the shore? Oh, that was ages ago, actually. Okay. Yeah, not the other day, being <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> it all turns into a blur, doesn't it? What day is it today? Who knows? Yeah. So how's that? Are you you're working from home? Uh, yeah, um, I'm at the moment, I, I've, I'm just a district councillor, so it's a part-time job. I arrived back in New Zealand after a 30-year absence in March in March of 2019. Um, so, yeah, I've been looking for uh, work in my line of science, which is, um, oh, I spent 22 years working in the nuclear industry doing a range of environmental and nuclear research. So the nuclear word is still a dirty word here. <laughs> so you just call it physics? 
Yeah, that's right. Environmental chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) And where have you been working? Where have you been for that 30 Uh, years? Yeah, well, the last location was in Argentina uh, for 10 years, a decade. My wife's actually from there. Um, and prior, and I was working at the place called the Comisión Nacional de Energía Atómica, which is the uh, Atomic Energy Commission of Argentina. Uh, prior to that, for more than a decade, another 12 years, I was at the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organization, which is their premier nuclear research institute, which is located on the outskirts of Sydney. So, yeah, I've done a few stints also as a uh, senior research fellow at various universities like the Australian National University and the University of New South Wales. So I've been around, <laughs> got a few years on my back, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Let's play the first of your music selections. Let's go for Bruce Springsteen, who's walking the streets of Philadelphia. Why do you like this one? Well, he's a pretty resilient fellow, isn't it? And they keep talking about resilience. It doesn't get much more resilient than the the boss.
Well, Springsteen is a, is a resilient chap. He's, uh, I guess I was listening to him at university, so that was a long time ago. And uh, he sings a lot about the, the plight of the working man in America, in the United States, which I, you know, he's, he's pretty much on the, on, on the money on that one. There are a lot of people in America, the richest country in the history of the world, doing it pretty tough. What's a nuclear scientist doing with a social conscience? Yeah, <laughs> I'm a socialist. <laughs> Why can't you be a nuclear scientist then be a socialist? <laughs> so you've been doing some analysis of, of the exponential curves and looking at well, all the numbers that we're all looking of, at? Oh, sorry, it's, it's kind of um, in the DNA, really, uh, because in, in nuclear chemistry, you, uh, you know, you, you're studying properties of isotopes, and isotopes have the property that they decay with time. And the decay is an exponential decay. Um, it's the inverse of exponential growth. So when we talk about exponential growth, we look at a curve that goes up like a hockey stick. But the exponential decay, decay curve that characterizes isotopes is sort of the mirror image of that curve if you put a mirror uh, along the y-axis. So isotopes decay with time. Uh, every isotope that's got its characteristic decay uh, period. So, uh, you know, it goes with the territory. <laughs> and growth doesn't have to be very much growth for it to the, for it to double and, and the, get bigger quite yeah, quickly. That's, that's correct. Um, well, the equation is pretty simple. Uh, I guess by about nine, year 9 or 11, people should have covered it at school. But it, it does fool you. I mean, the equation is something like n, which is the, the amount of a, of a quantity. It's equal to the n naught, which is the amount of the quantity at the start, times the exponent raised to the power of kt, where t is time. And the, the constant k is actually the log of 2 divided by the growth rate in percent. So a function that's uh, the exponential function is a function that increases by a constant percentage amount every every certain amount of time. Um, and the thing that happens, uh, the 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 example I like to give, which crystallizes it in people's mind, is is compound interest. So if at time zero at the start we were to put a hundred dollars in the bank, and it increased by ten percent. Annually, well, in the first year, you'd have $110. The second year, you'd have $121. The third year, $133. By the seventh year, that $100 would have doubled. So that's what we call the doubling time. And the, for, for a, a quantity that's increasing by 10% every year, the doubling time is, is 70 divided by the growth rate, which is 10%. So it's, it's every seven years. So in the 14th year, you'd have... $400, the 21st year of $740. And if you plot that on a piece of graph paper or on your Excel spreadsheet, you'll see that it defines something that looks like a hockey stick and eventually it goes uh, reaching for the sky. So the, the interesting thing is for a, a large period of the time, nothing appears to happen. It all happens in the, in, in the bat of an eye, so to speak. And that is the thing that fools you about exponential growth. I guess lately we've been hearing a lot about exponential growth with COVID-19 because viruses in an unconstrained environment increase uh, their population in a, an exponential manner. Why, when they're talking about the, on the exponential growth graphs that we keep seeing, why do they say it doesn't really matter what the population is when they're comparing countries? 
Is it because it's it's the slope that's important? Well, it's it's because inevitably, if the if the growth wasn't constrained, everyone would have, would end up in the same place. It would be a function that goes to the sky. It might be slightly displaced, but in the end, you end up almost vertical. And that's the thing that people just don't get. I mean, if it was a CEO of a company that got up at the beginning of the year and said, well, we've had this marvellous growth rate of 1%, that'd get laughed out of the room. But 1% growth year on year translates to a doubling time of 70 years, which is actually quite, it's not very, a lot really. And the growth of human population, which is the thing that's causing us a lot of grief, uh, it, it's roughly going at about that that amount. So that means every 70 years we're doubling in population. New Zealand's growth rate is slightly higher than that. It's, it's uh, a three-year average is probably around about 2%, which means that New Zealand's population, if it carried on at 2%, would double in 35 years. And that's got to be a bit frightening for, for, for people, really, because you have to ask the question uh, about whether or not the country can sustain it. The same applies to the economic growth. It, it, it does, because economic growth or GDP growth, if you want to call it that, uh, it's a, a variable I don't like or quantity I don't like too much because it doesn't really capture much, except for the amount of money that's circulating that's been generated by the economy. So economic growth is really, um, you know, it's, it's the same thing as saying rate of consumption because economic growth comes from consumption. It's consumption of resources uh, that come from this earth and they're finite. We, are, we live on a finite planet. So, you know, you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And that's what would happen to a bacterium if it was in a constrained environment. Let's say the Petri dish is like the world. Uh, you might start with just a couple of bacteria there, but before you know it, you would uh, those bacteria would outgrow uh, the capacity of the medium in which they uh, are, are multiplying to sustain them and that eventually die. So there is a period of exponential growth and then it starts to level off as the environment constrains the growth of the bacteria. Eventually they all die. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist observing city life in lockdown. Hello there, bubble folk. It's Liesl here in my bubble down in the downtown. Down in the downtown. Uh, enjoying my day, and I hope you are too. Lovely to catch up with you here. Uh, so, I've, I've just, I'm procrastinating actually. I should be making some food. Um, but you know, uh, it's much, much more pleasant to have a chat with people than to uh, have to do any kind of tasks, chores. Um, jobs yep talking to people definitely always my go-to if I have the choice um, <laughs> but um, yeah no I've just been thinking a little bit about the whole baking and cooking and making food kind of thing because making food obviously is a important part of our lives we all need food that's not a that's that's not a negotiable one but um, the sort of the way that we put our food together, I guess, is something I'm thinking about here. And I was just thinking about, you know, the mad panic buying at the supermarket when lockdown was first sort of announced or even before that. And 
just how obviously food is a you know it's a it's something that we take comfort in it's also something that we um, maybe have feelings about nostalgia uh, there's and I guess that ties into comfort so I know for me um, one of my sort of comfort foods I guess is soup which is weird because I always hated soup when I was a kid but as an old adult as an oldie as an oldie <laughs> yeah I can be an oldie as an oldie adult um, I have weirdly become a huge soup fan I wonder how many other people have had this experience being fed soup as kids and being like oh my gosh not soup not soup why soup it always seemed like such a such a sort of like let down kind of a meal you know um, but soup and homemade bread were always things that uh, we had on offer at our place when I was growing up and my mum would make amazing soups um, one of my favourites, actually one that I liked at the time and one that I love now, is um, leek and potato soup, which was she would always present to the table as a visuasie, which I always thought was super cool. I don't even know if that's quite the right way to say it, but um, we'd always pretend that was the right way to say it. Uh, so leek and potato soup with homemade bread, and there's just those smells, there's the warmth of the soup, there's the flavours, it's creamy, it's rich, it's comforting. And I wonder how many of us have sort of taken comfort in food over the last few weeks, um, one way or another. It's not about necessarily just sitting there and snacking on chalky bars and bags of chips, although that potentially has been going down too. <laughs> I've tried to limit it, you know, Friday nights, I'm like, Friday night, it's completely legitimate to go and buy some chocolate and some chippies, yeah, it's just when, you know, Saturday night also becomes legit, legitimate too, You've, that's when I can feel the slope getting slippery slidey, but um, back to those comfort foods, I think um, possibly that's why a lot of baking has been going on too, because there's something about, um, yeah, uh, spending your time making food and because we've probably had a little bit more time over the last few weeks we've maybe been able to take that time to oh what would I like to make as opposed to oh my gosh you know I've got to put something on the table uh, right I've got half an hour let's whip something up um, and there's something really lovely about being able to take your time with making food and I think um, that's something that I've always noticed also when you when you get a coffee you know when you go into a cafe and the barista just looks like they're having a really bad day and I'm always extremely worried for my coffee because I feel like the love is not going to be poured into that cup of coffee. <laughs> the anger is going to be poured into that cup of coffee. So um, always be nice to your barista and that is just the rule. Um, but yeah, equally, as we're making this sort of food for ourselves, for maybe our people around us, um, for our friends, for our families... Um, yeah, what, what are we putting into that food and why are we maybe choosing the food that we're choosing and what does it mean to us? Um, food's a, a very interesting one to sort of delve into. Anyway, that's me for today. Those are my thoughts. Um, hope you're just rocking it out. Hope you have something delicious for dinner. That's what I'd be thinking right now. And um, we'll chat soon. Take care out there. In the terms of the, the virus that we're also concerned about, the, the equivalent to the... In the interest rate that you're mentioning, is that the thing that they're talking about, the R? No, that's the reproduction rate. That also influences the rate at which they function. Uh, that, that is, the, the R naught value is 
how many people get infected by a given infected person? So if I've got one person, they infect four, the reproduction rate would be four. But obviously, if you've got a reproduction rate of two, that's a lot less than and four would, would double the, the time in which you get up this exponential slope. Eventually, you'd still end up in the same looking shape curve. And it, but, has yeah, to, it has to be below one, doesn't it? If it's below one, eventually we will uh, rein it in and the, the virus would eventually die out. Well, not that the virus is alive, but let's say that its ability to um, be viable it would eventually disappear from the population. You're talking about growth there before on a finite planet. You can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. That's so obvious. How come it's so radical when people say it? <laughs> yeah. It should be obvious if you thought about it enough. Um, but, yeah, the exponential function is, like, like I said, it's got this characteristic that nothing much happens. It's like the human population that didn't really take off until for 10,000 years, nothing appeared to happen. It all happens at the end. So I guess we all just mosey along blithely thinking that everything's fine. You look out the window, it looks like a nice day. And so we, we, we never really, it, it doesn't really hit us in the face. Like the coronavirus has, because, you know, it's happened so quickly and you can see people, people will uh, are dying. We can see the numbers that we can see. But in terms of, of climate change and, and the plundering of the earth's resources and whatnot, that doesn't appear to be happening so quickly, but it is. It is happening. And I think that at the end of the day, it's it's really about, you know, it's a sociological issue, and that's out of my ken, so to speak. But I guess we're we're a greedy species. We just don't know when when enough is enough. Um, and so we're, we're mesmerized by this thing called growth. Now, like I said, if you told us, see, if a CEO of a company got up and said, I've got zero growth this year, Yahoo, I'm doing so well, uh, nobody would accept it. Yet that would be an equilibrium situation, and that's what we should be looking at, a, a situation of equilibrium where, you know, in, in chemical terms, an equilibrium is a, a reaction that reaches the point where the rate of, in one direction is the same as the rate in the opposite direction. So everything maintains... Uh, and an equilibrium and stable state, but that's not where we're at. We just think that we can just keep on growing and growing. And this, you know, this idea has been thrown around for a long time. And and science is, um, you know, the, people have been looking at systems for a long time. In fact, there was a pretty good book written in the 1970s by a guy called Dennis Meadows, uh, entitled "The Limits of Growth," where they've shown that. Uh, growth is infinite growth is unsustainable and the question becomes how quickly we're going to reach a plateau and go and how we go down the other side so we we hit we hit a peak and either we stabilize or we go we basically become extinct just like the the bacteria in the petri dish are we undone by the the thing which we know is a bit of a mantra but we've never really come to terms with the thinking global act local that we don't really know how to do that and i'm thinking that in, in terms of the like trying to improve the lot of the people in Fokotani, you say, well, okay, we need to grow the Fokotani economy. But we can't all do that because then we're growing everything. Well, I think that, I mean, 
it is, well, the problem that we have is one of, of distribution. Um, and I, I guess Thomas Piketty's book, I guess, you've heard of it, have you? Um, his book on, um, on economics and growth and inequality, basically, is what it's about. Uh, it's a pretty meaty read, but inequality has increased dramatically in the last 30 or 40 years. There's plenty of resources out there, but they're all distributed poorly. And you can see that in, in the U.S. dialogue, for example, you'll often hear that 1% of the population has got about 60% of the wealth, something like that. And you have to ask yourself, why does the 1% need to have so much? And why is it that in a place like America that in its total, in its total is an extremely wealthy country, but yet 45% of Americans don't have $400 of savings. They can't afford to fix their fridge if it breaks tomorrow. So that's the issue is one of how, how resources are distributed. Uh, and, and yeah, we chase this growth thing uh, idea and thinking that somehow it's going to benefit everybody. And you've probably heard about raising all boats, but oftentimes... Uh, chasing economic growth has not, in the last 30 or 40 years, raised all boats. Um, you know, worker salaries for the average worker have remained pretty well constant. Uh, maybe move slightly up with inflation, but that's about it. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, na mihi aroha nui, kia koutou koutou ho I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful beloved beings, and your beautiful beloved bubbles. And I'm just so excited to have some more time with you amazing triumphs of nature's art. And I'm so grateful that we physically manifested at this time together the product of literally billions of years of life on earth. And here we are, a sublime human animal, connected to all other life in an infinite web and here to make things better together. So I thought that we could speak together about something that we really excel at as a species of animal and that is flexibility and we certainly wouldn't be here without billions of years of flexibility from all our ancestors, all life that's come before us on this earth and at this time we're really being asked to excel in the realm of flexibility yet again and I really think in many ways it's our default setting. So at this time we are having the opportunity to practice flexibility but also having some flexibility extended towards us in return because we've moved of course from level four to level three and so our bubbles in their very nature have become more flexible. We're able to explore further in our bubble, we're able to welcome one or two more family members, close whānau members into our bubbles. And so this new realm of level three is encouraging us to be more flexible in many ways. So something that happened for me, which I thought I would love to talk to you about, is that my beautiful godmother, Ginny, who I have spoken to you about before, who encouraged me in feeling love at a distance when I went to the UK when I was seven, and also encouraged me to choose solitude to find that stillness within as a teenager and she has now joined a bubble so of course she came around last night which meant that I needed to do my wonderful radio show for Sam 
today so that's me practicing flexibility and Sam very kindly practicing flexibility but also I had to practice flexibility because of course with her when she joined our bubble she brought so much of her own reality and her own universe with her that of course I have only been communicating with at a distance and her physical presence was so communicative and so inspiring in terms of the level to which she could communicate and it was a big shift to have a new person around. So I just want to extend to you all the warmest congratulations at your deep emotional resilience at this time and in general we are navigating new territory together and we are learning and learning and learning and evolving and evolving and evolving together as we go. And even these slight shifts from communicating at a distance via all the wonderful tools we've developed as a species of animal to being face-to-face and communicating in person again, these are big shifts. And so, of course, with her, she brought all of her perceptions and her feelings and she wanted to have the opportunity to share and express them. And so for me, I had to practice that flexibility of taking a bit of a step back and not becoming enmeshed emotionally in that process of sharing to the point where I couldn't be helpful and supportive to her. So by taking a bit of a step back and being able to show that flexibility, I was able to be to be there for her emotionally and be supportive without becoming enmeshed myself and that was really helpful. So I hope that you're having the opportunity to practice these ways of negotiating realities with one another so that you're not emotionally drained and you're able to be there as an emotional support yourselves. So the other realm of flexibility which of course I've been enjoying is that I have been communicating at a distance with my students that previously I would be teaching up at Orokanui and this has meant some flexibility in terms of my teaching style and my learning style as I learn from them. So I was working with Logan Park today which was very exciting and we did a bit of a timeline exercise about of course Zelandia splitting away from that Gondwanan landmass and the sea levels rising and falling and Māori migration, European arrival and the establishment of Orokanui eco-sanctuary and the translocation of species such as kāka and the opening of the eco-sanctuary to the public and now, of course, baby Tuatara being born. And I thought, how wonderful, you know, that we can so clearly map out all these changes that all these lives have had to be so flexible around. But of course, there's so much that we don't know about. And in just the same way now, we can do our best to celebrate and be aware of the flexibility that surrounds us and that we are practicing. But there's so much out there that is happening beyond anything we can comprehend. And I find that quite comforting and inspiring. So I hope that you're enjoying your day and your beautiful beloved bubbles. I'm really looking forward to having more time with you tomorrow. Thank you so much. Kakiti. What do you think the difference is between the the urgency of that that the scientists have been telling us for a long time 
and we pretty much haven't done anything. Emissions have yeah. pretty much carried on rising. And in the face of the COVID thing, the COVID threat, we have managed to change an awful lot about what we're doing. Well, I think it's it's that with COVID, things are imminent. I mean, it could be that it's it's you or a member of your family that that succumbs to this virus, and that's very real for people. But as I was saying before, you know, you can look out. Well, today is not a good example, but you look out the window. It's a lovely day, and you think to yourself, "What? Well, there's not. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with the world. Everything seems so beautiful." But we have to look at it in a more scientific manner. And I think that's kind of out of the realms of, of a lot of people. Uh, you know, there, there are still a few deniers out there, but whilst, whilst you've got a proportion of people who deny this, the science, not everyone necessarily understands it, but um, I think it's a question of having faith in the people that are in the expertise of the people that are telling you what's happening. So, yeah, it's, it's a question of speed. You see an immediate effect and relatively immediate. This is all, corona's happening all, all in a period of just a few months. Climate change has stretched out over, say, 100 years, uh, but it's happening. The, we've got our fingers on the pulse. Science has got its fingers on the pulse. The temperature is increasing. The frequency of extreme weather events is going up. These things are all measurable quantitatively. And, you know, we can tell people about it, but as long as they look out the window and see that everything seems all right, it's a question of, uh, you know, they will just carry on doing what they're doing. Um, and, and then there's all the political issue, yeah. Uh, it's putting the resources into, into first accepting that there's a problem and then really getting wholesale acceptance by people and governments to actually try and do something about it. Because if we don't, uh, you know, the, it's the survival of the human species that is at stake here. So what do you think we can learn from the response to the coronavirus Well, I'm, that, that, I'm we can, that, we, we that, that we can transfer? I'm, I'm hoping we do learn something. I mean, death is very tangible to people. But, you know, over the last few years, we've lost especially this is being spearheaded in America, the idea of truth and the idea of evidence and data. Um, and I think we've got to come back to this because now with the corona, we're completely dependent or becoming more and more dependent on what the the professionals say, the people who dedicate their lives to studying these sorts of effects. And in climate change, we have to do the same. So I get a lot of arguments from people. They don't know anything about climate science. And I just tell them that, well, when you go to the doctor, you don't go to the doctor and tell them, oh, doc, I've got this and you should do that and you should do the other thing. You don't tell the doctor what's wrong with you. Otherwise, why bother going there? Well, when you go to the mechanic, you don't go and, 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 and tell the mechanic what he's got to do. You're bringing the car because you don't know what to do. So when it comes to climate change, we have to listen to the experts. And maybe we're starting to get a bit of that now because we're listening to more of the experts in, in, on the COVID-19 issue than we have ever in, in climate, but that's because of the how imminent this the threat is. And climate is not perceived to be such a threat, but it is. It is, you know, people talk about the Anthropocene and the sixth uh, uh, mass extinction, and it's going to be us. And I think the data is clear 
I mean, I, I, I have in front of me um, a article that came out in a, in, in a New Zealand newspaper more than 100 years ago saying that, you know, the smokestacks of the world are emitting so much, are burning so much coal and emitting so many gigatons of carbon dioxide and that something needed to be done. This is more than 100 years ago. Um, you know, the Union of Concerned Scientists has been emitting um, warnings to humanity starting from 1992. And they've now issued three or four warnings to, to humanity that something needs to be done. So we need to listen to the experts. But is it... James Hansen, maybe it was Bill McKibben, no, it was James Hansen, said that he produced all of this, you know, showed all the graphs, showed, presented all of the scientific findings, and then pretty much moved on because he thought, well, that's clearly so obvious they're going to do something about it, and only came back to it and realised, hang on, I have to actually take a role in convincing people more than just presenting the straight, you know, the, the, the straight findings. Do you think science has got a, a more involved role in that? Well, it, I think that it does. I think you've got a good point there because scientists are pretty dedicated to what they do and they seldom come out of their laboratories or their offices um, and communicate in terms that people can really understand. Um, that You know, it's all, all very well. But I think also there's another issue. I think that all the decisions are really made um, by politicians at the end of the day who respond to what the public wants. So I, I keep on saying that we need to have more scientists in politics. And so that's a, a part of what's driven me to do what I'm doing at the moment. Um, but it is tough going. It is hard to explain to people what's going on. And, uh, you know, you, there's a lot of window dressing going on, even in, in our country where you see that we've got a, a zero carbon bill and I can't for the life of me figure out how, figure out how we're going to get there. How are we going to reduce our emissions to zero by 2050? So, yeah, I mean, the scientists have got to come out. They've got to put it on the table and I think it's being done. And then there needs to be a, that needs to be communicated to, you know, the average person. So in a, in a way that they can understand it. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we are, as I said before, a greedy species and maybe we're a selfish species too i mean it's really it's really what the individual wants to do for their kids and their kids kids so normally we live for the day and we're in a, an economic system that kind of forces it on us so yeah we really need to take a good look at ourselves and there are things that and some individuals are just overpowered by it all they say well what can i do you know i'm just a small fish um, but I think that, you know, a whole bunch of small fishers that get together can make things happen. Uh, you know, ground, uh, grassroots movements do move the world sometimes, and I think we, we need one in this area, and, uh, and, and the people have to realise that they, the actions they take can have, can have an impact. Um, distributing wealth, uh, letting governments get on with the job of confronting the issue and and New Zealand would be a good place to show that it can be done. That's what I would like to see New Zealand taking some concerted action on climate. Not because we're going to make a big difference, because we're only about 0.2% of the problem. But if we can show an example, some leadership, then I think we can make the people who are really responsible for the lion's share of emissions, uh, maybe we can sway them to make the changes that need to be made.
that argument that we're we're really tiny and it doesn't make much impact is a is an opportunity for Chicago to say, well, Chicago doesn't have to do anything, or you know, other other areas that can identify as being the same sort of size, and pretty much everybody can identify. Well, if you're only looking at this area, then it do- doesn't have much impact. Yeah, well, I, I think it's I, I, maybe I didn't re- represent what I was trying to say, but I think it's a fallacious argument. It's false. Um, what we really should be doing as a country are trying to set some leadership and show that it can be done. And we're in a good position for that to happen because of our smallness. Um, you know, we've got these clean and green credentials that I'm not sure we completely deserve. But, you know, government uh, is trying to do some things and important things in, in various areas. Uh, water, uh, for example, uh, we're trying to get our act together on water. Uh, we have got the zero carbon bill. And we do need to do everything that needs to be done in order to make sure that we meet those those emissions targets so that we can show the big emitters that it can be done. And, uh, you know, there's been, there was a, a Stern report which was issued by the UK government in 2006. Now Stern, Nicholas Stern was an economist, and he basically showed that if you did take on this green economy, um, you it wasn't going to cost. It was actually cheaper to intervene early uh, and, and it would cost you, as I say, 3% of GDP to to uh, do something on the climate change issue. Or if you waited till uh, too late, then it, would go, it was going to cost a lot more. So actually, you know, confronting uh, climate change does not have to be uh, painful in economic terms. Uh, we can do things better than what we're doing and still uh, contribute to getting our emissions down. We can go to renewable energies. We're already doing quite well in that department in New Zealand. Uh, the adoption of electric vehicles have a have a role to play, and so there's lots of lots of things we can actually do. Um, and I like to quote uh, this professor Albert Bartlett, who spent 30 years trying to teach his first year uh, university students about exponential function, and he really had he had a pretty clear. He came up with these seven points that I like to recite. Um, and, it, and it all comes from a simple mathematical equation. And what does he say? He says that we need to educate all of our people to an understanding of the arithmetic and consequences of growth. So we have to understand that when we go ranting on about growth, that eventually it's going to give us uh, an exponential function, which is going to go skyward, and that's going to be bad for everybody. Um, with number point two was that we should conserve in the use and consumption of everything. I think most people can probably understand that. You know, why why waste? Uh, point three, we should recycle almost everything. And he says that we should invest uh, great sums in research to overcome some of these technological problems that we've got and harness, uh, you know, renewable energies rather than burning fossil fuels. I think point four was recognise that it's exceedingly unscientific to promote ever-increasing rates of consumption. And we should outlaw planned obsolescence. Uh, I think most of us know that a lot of the products we buy actually have a design life. They're designed to break. And lastly, and probably most importantly, he says that you should not sit back and deplore the lack of leadership. We all have to show leadership. And as I was saying, I think that New Zealand could have an international leadership role because we are quite an agile place and small. And so changes here can um, be brought about very quickly 
And by setting an example for the major emitters, maybe we can move the meter, we can move the needle. Eagles, last resort. She came from Providence, one in Rhode Island, where the old world shadows hang heavy in the air. She packed her hopes and dreams like a refugee. Just as her father came across the sea She heard about a place people were smiling They spoke about the red man's weight How they loved the land They came from everywhere to the great divide
So, Victor, what do you think you've seen in the last month or so, more than that now, that you think will stick? And what do you hope will stick? Well, I think we might have all learned a little bit about exponential growth because it's been we've been bombarded by it, haven't we? Um, it's quite interesting. When I got here in last year, about August, I started writing this article for our local paper on the exponential growth. And in the end, I wasn't sure what to do with it. I thought, oh, this, this is quite scary for a lot of people. And then eventually it got published in our, you know, our, our, our little local newspaper, the Fakatani Beacon. And, um, you know, but nothing could, nothing could burn it on the mind any better than this COVID-19 has done. And if I might just make one more comment, because I was, I've got a, quite a, a clever collaborator, a young lady in Australia, 
who, you know, I shared a few things with her and I guess it's all sounds doom, doom and gloom. And she said, well, she made that comment that what is it that I can do? <laughs> uh, and I, I passed on to her a, a paper that was written in 2017 where people have actually, or a group of researchers have actually quantified the benefits or the emission savings that can be obtained by taking certain actions. And well, number one on the list, the biggest impact you can have, you can save about 60 tons of CO2 per year. If you have one less child, so that's a massive impact. So that's about 60 tons of carbon per year. The next thing down on that list is live car free. That'll save you almost three tons. That, that'll, that, that's about three tons of carbon worth. Um, you avoid one transatlantic flight and you add about one and a half tons of carbon saved. Buy green energy and you've got another one and a half tons of carbon saved. Buy more efficient car, you're down to one ton saved. Um, switch to an electric car. Actually, funny, funnily enough, it looks about the same, but it all depends where, that's a whole issue. I mean, you could, I could wax lyrical for another half an hour on electric cars, but yeah, in New Zealand, electric cars make sense. You can reduce your emissions by about 50%. Plant-based diet will save you almost a ton. Uh, replace gasoline with hybrids, about a half a ton. Wash clothes in cold water, recycle, and, uh, and so on. It goes down, down, down. So <laughs> those are some of the things that, that people can do at the individual level. Those, are, those values are quantified. They have been all calculated out. So it's no bull, so to speak. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me. Mawira, did you have any last thoughts? Uh, enjoy the sunshine while you have it, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope we don't break any. We've probably broken records for amount of sunshine in the sunny Bay of Plenty, but let's hope we don't break any records for um, wild weather. <laughs> oh, yes. Pretty wild out there today. Yeah. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world, brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook too. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani. We've been talking with Dr. Victor Luca in Fakatani. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.